0: your menopause sugar cravings with all-natural Bossa Bars Menopause Energy Bars. They're delicious keto and intermittent fasting-friendly bars created to help women manage weight loss and energy during the challenging stages of the pause. Try them at BossaBars.com. That's B-O-S-S-A Bars.com. And save 10% with code HOTCOOL10. <laughs> Welcome to Hot Flashes and Cold Topics podcast, the voice for midlife women and beyond. At Hot Flashes and Cold Topics, we talk about anything and everything to do with midlife. My name is Bridget. And I'm Colleen. And today, we are having our very last episode of Season 3. So Season 4, I know this is crazy. Season 4 will start next week. September 7th. That's wild. I still feel like, oh, we are new to podcasting. I'm like... (laughs) oh my gosh, no, we're not. No, we're the old ones It's crazy. We go to the podcast conferences, and we're like, yeah, we do that. Yeah, we do that. Yeah, we know that. (laughs) And I'm like, oh my God, we're not the new people. So it's very exciting. So today, we are talking to Val Schoenberg. And Val Schoenberg uh, has Enlighten You Nutrition Consulting. She's a registered dietitian and nutritionist, and she's also NAMS certified. And this is a really great conversation from... 2020. It was actually live streamed and we just really got some great information. It was right in the thick of lockdown. So it, it really is a great conversation with Val. What did you think, Holly? I just, I thought it was really educational because
1: she, obviously, this topic is weight gain in midlife and menopause. And a lot of people think, well, my hormones are causing me to gain weight. And yes, to a certain extent, The decline in estrogen and progesterone does cause some weight gain, but there are so many other factors that create this perfect storm. You always have to factor in genetics. Now all of a sudden your lifestyle may be different. You're not running around catching children anymore. You're not going from here to there and everywhere. Maybe you're enjoying going out a little more to eat and you can afford to go out to eat a little bit more. And there are just so many factors, lifestyle factors that come into play. Plus there's loss of muscle mass, An increase in fat retention. It's just like she said, the perfect storm. And I think that's a good analogy. It was, yeah. Mm -hmm. She talks about like sort of intuitive eating where she doesn't want to talk about diets necessarily because it leads to disordered eating. And their eating disorders are a big thing for women in midlife and beyond. So I thought it was just really informative. You'll hear us that it is live, like Bridget said. So we asked some of the questions that the group asked, which were really good. And I think it's a great way to end season three because it's one of the most asked questions that we get from midlife women is why am I doing the same thing? I'm eating the same, I'm exercising the same, but I'm putting on weight. What is happening? And Val answers that.
0: Yes, she does. It's it's a great conversation. And I'm so glad to hear it again because I was just listening to it again. And I'm like, yes, just a great thing to listen to again and give yourself reminders. I forget, like, oh, I forget almost 200 episodes, guys. And it's sometimes we need the refreshing. We do. We need the refreshing Definitely things stick from every conversation that we've had, but it's so great to re-listen and say, yes, and okay, this is why it's important. That's why weight-bearing exercises are so important. It's not like you have to go out and kill yourself either. It's just keeping that muscle mass that we have. And, you know, with sarcopenia, is that what the word was? Yes, yes. loss of muscle mass. Loss mm-hmm. of muscle mass and how that can just lead to contribute to so many things about your lifestyle. And it's more about health um, and and quality longev- longevity. Yes, quality of yes. life. Not necessarily yes. how long you live, but how well you live that.
1: And we also want to remind you guys that we have a newsletter that goes out just about weekly, and it will have a blog that talks about the topic. So this week, obviously, the blog will be about weight gain, and it'll have links to the episodes. It'll have brands that we like to use that be related to this topic, and we'll recommend different movies, books, different things like that. So if you'd like to join our newsletter, just go to hotflashescooltopics.com. You'll see a little pop-up. Click your email in there, and you'll start receiving those newsletters. They're lots of fun, and sometimes we even answer questions from our listeners. So why don't we let Val take over? She's going to let you know why you might be gaining some weight in midlife and beyond. Enjoy.
2: So welcome Val. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and have an opportunity to see you instead of just talking. I've done these before where you just you don't get to really see everybody. So Mm -hmm. excited Mm -hmm. to see the questions and have the conversation. Well, we are
1: grateful that you took the time to sit here and chat with us. I can't emphasize enough how many times I hear these questions from women. Why all of a sudden is my middle getting bigger? Like I don't and there are actual reasons for it. But your doctors don't tell you, your friends don't want to talk about it. And I think, you know, I read an article that you had written and you talk about it being the perfect storm. And it truly is in midlife because you have lifestyle changes. You may be going through marital issues, empty nesting. You may be traveling more. And so there's a lot of things that come into play here. But you see a lot of women in midlife, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. And is this one of the main issues they walk in and say, I am gaining weight and I don't know what to do?
2: Yes. And as a dietitian, that's often where I think we're a little bit of a gatekeeper or kind of on the front line. So women may be struggling. With a lot of other issues related to menopause symptomology, but it's the weight gain that's like the tipping point. Okay, I can't deal with this anymore, my body's out of control, and so I'll just find a dietitian or a nutritionist to give me the next best diet or foods to eat and everything will be fine and dandy and better. And so that's certainly where we we meet and where I meet them at. But often there's other stuff going on, right, related to lifestyle changes. And And I think that's one of the perspectives that's maybe unique about what I bring to the work I do is that I'm putting it out there. I'm a 55-year-old going through this right along with my clients. And, and that's actually kind of what start how it started for me to even like why would a dietitian get involved in menopause but it was hearing my clients come to me with their questions and I felt like I didn't have very good answers so I kept learning and learning and digging and researching and <laughs> here we are mm-hmm. what I really liked about your article I read
0: your article and I, I just what I like first of all was how you talked about how the dietitians need to really be sympathetic with what's going on with women in this age. Mm-hmm. Because that is probably a big fear. That is one with me. I'm almost afraid of being admonished. Uh, going in and being yelled at and, or being just like these weigh-ins and terrifying me. And you also mentioned, um, just being just tethered to calorie counting or food diaries and things like that. And can you talk a little bit more about what
2: you've learned about that? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. Because again, my background was that I started in working in nutrition in eating disorders and in, in eating disorder treatment. And I worked with all types of eating disorders across um, all ages and different levels of care. And so one of the areas that I specialized in when I worked in an eating disorder treatment program was compulsive overeating and binge eating disorder. And I would get a lot of we would see a lot of individuals, it'd be quite common that some of these individuals would be put on diets as early as 12 or 13 years old. And I, and since then have even heard younger ages that individuals are kind of well-meaning parents trying to help them out, but taking them into, you know, Weight Watchers or whatever it is. And so then that stepping on the scale and the judgment and the shame of being able to eat right and get to a certain body size starts at such a young age, and, and even if it started later for somebody, I've heard hundreds of these stories, so that has a huge impact on me in terms of I would never want to do anything or say anything that would trigger disordered eating for someone, and certainly not an eating disorder, and so a little bit of diet culture in the diet industry, unfortunately, has set up individuals for that pattern. So that's why I'm not super fond of calorie counting, but also it's not really very reliable. And it's one of those things kind of like BMI that was invented a gazillion years ago based on different science. And we know more now, like we know that a calorie in doesn't equal the calorie out. And it's much more dynamic and complex in the body than this simple equation that people think of. And, and so for a lot of reasons, I really try to help steer people or or meet them where they're at but then guide them more to something that's really focused on what you can control what are healthy behaviors, what are things with food and eating and especially at this age in midlife heading into, it's sad to say, but the diseases of aging that are real, mm-hmm. um, we can really change our mindset about our relationship with food and our body for that matter so that's a little bit of a, a long story as mm-hmm. to why I'm pretty sensitive to not just putting people on a scale or having people do a bunch of food journaling but people expect that they come in like I got my my fitness pal and I'm ready to go I'm like okay well let's talk about that (laughs)
1: let's ask the million dollar question which is the midlife middle why does it seem that as we pass 40 45 we start to get perimenopausal we start to gain weight in our middle
2: Yes. So, what the research will show us is that, on average, women gain about five pounds when they go through the menopause transition. But when they've controlled for the different stages of menopause, so premenopause is that time which is really your reproductive age, perimenopause is about you know on anywhere on average four years to up to ten years prior to the final menstrual period, and when. When we think about that transition, it seems like lifestyle seems to be more related in the research to this weight gain rather than menopause itself or the changing hormones itself. So, you know, I think they continue to research that and debate that. However, it does seem that declining estrogen specifically for reasons that I still haven't really found a good answer for, um, just causes the body to shift and store more of that fat. So if you're going to gain weight, you're more likely to gain it in your middle than you would have in your hips or hip area. And so for a woman who might have been Say that apple shape to begin with, right, where she was already maybe genetically predisposed to storing fat in her middle section, you know, she might see a greater increase in that. And for the woman who maybe was experiencing something more of like a pear shape where she would store fat in her hips, which is really important for childbearing, and that's why that happens, we don't need to be reproductive anymore, we don't need to have kids anymore, and so that fat, for some of those reasons, um, shift to that middle. I'm always kind of trying to get to the next layer, which is mechanistically. Why does that happen? You know, is it because it becomes a little bit more similar to what we see and say, males, right? In terms of how males are more likely to store fat happens to be in their middle. So Mm -hmm. there's some theories around what happens with testosterone or a lot of other things, but in general, it's really the effect of declining estrogen that causes that redistribution of body fat. And when I'm talking about a perfect storm in terms of menopausal weight gain, it's, it's a number of these different factors. So you can look at the menopause research or literature and see, okay, So changing hormones seem to have an effect on fat redistribution or even maybe some increase. But we also see that changing hormones affect centers in our brain that affect appetite. And so we kind of have a higher or more urge to eat. Um, It affects sleep-wake cycles, as many of us know. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly affects temperature regulation. And so it also can affect fat oxidation. So our body just doesn't want to burn fat As readily. And so that's just hormones, right? And then there's sarcopenia, which is a technical term for this natural loss of lean tissue that happens as we age. And as we know, lean tissue is really our most metabolically active tissue. Well, this occurs in both men and women. It's a part of aging. And so that's where activity comes in, right? So the more active we stay, even with unintentional activity, we can slow that decline which can be really important so we don't have to just keep eating less and less basically to maintain weight. Another factor are lifestyle changes. Um, Just all these things that we're doing, you know, kids leaving the house potentially for some people, taking care of aging parents. Some people have kids moving back into their house. There's career changes. Uh, We've just gone through all of that. Yeah. (laughs) Career changes, a move from Minnesota to Georgia, a lot of lifestyle changes that just really kind of disrupt habits and patterns and changes. And then there's this final part of the perfect storm that, again, is just a whole nother body of literature and research, which is the effect of diets and going on and off diets and consequently, or some people call it yo-yo dieting, or but weight cycling. So you gain a bunch of weight and then you lose weight. You gain weight and you lose weight. And that actually has an effect on All of those different things, your appetite centers, certain hormone regulation stays down, a hormone called leptin that after a period of weight loss, your body kind of will start to send you messages to be hungrier. And so even if you've restored the weight, it's all of that together. And so when I see someone come in and they've gained what they will say feels like a lot more weight than say that five pound lifestyle kind of change, I start to look at some of those other factors. And that's where we can do an intervention to obviously change activity, make sure they're getting enough nutrients and protein for maintaining that lean tissue, obviously interrupting the diet cycling pattern and helping kind of refocus where we can put our efforts. And in terms of hormones, it's really looking at as we lose estrogen or as that fluctuates and then declines, we need to be concerned about our bone health and our cardiovascular health and the risk of cancer and some of those things. So I like to help people focus on food and eating for improving your health versus the fixation on looking a certain way to go back to the yo-yo dieting. I know that you talk about the fact that
1: that can actually cause you to gain weight when you start trying to diet
2: again. Why is that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say that we in more recent years have better research and literature to understand that. I know that we have studies that go back as far as well, it seems like it's a long way away, but it's still in, in science actually relative like back to the 1980s where they were doing animal studies on some of this but what we see in most people will anecdotally report this right you want to lose weight you're in your 20s or 30s and so you do a diet and you lose weight like really fast or easily even it seems and then something happens and you don't stay on that diet. And then over time, you start to regain that weight and probably even a little bit more. And so there's some research that will show us that our body's way of adapting to that famine that occurred, it didn't know that you had well-meaning intentions to <laughs> lose weight. Your body's like, ooh, we were starving and we were in a famine and now we have a good food supply. And so your body's fat stores can potentially overshoot where they would have been. And so so oftentimes, if you give it enough time, the body will stabilize back out to where your genetic set point might be in that particular range. But then the person does that again, and I, I really refer to this as almost like an injury to the body. So it happens again, and you lose weight, but it, it's a little bit harder and it takes a little bit longer, But you, so you do probably a more restrictive, more rules, tighter control on a diet, and then you lose some weight feel really good about it, get a lot of attention for that, feel accomplished, but then something happens, right? stress happens, you do a move, and you gain the weight back, but it comes back faster. And The other thing that we will note from that literature is when it comes back, it actually preferentially gets stored in the belly area, coincidentally, mm-hmm. as visceral fat, because it's a protective mechanism by the body. So again, over time, if a person keeps doing this, it can just become where the body's very resistant to losing weight, and it's a protective mechanism by the body. So the- those metabolic adaptations that we might refer to them are something that I always say like if someone's going to prescribe you a diet, think of it like any other prescription. Know what the benefits are, but know what the risks are too or the potential side effects of that diet because really the best diet is the one you can stick with if you consider that literature. And then we have diet culture. We have an anti-aging culture. It doesn't take much to see that, you know, just if unless you turn off all media and all sorts media and unfollow a bunch of stuff sometimes that can be helpful but it's it's being aware of the marketing that's out there and that we don't have to put up with that but then layer upon that is say the 55 year old who used to be a dancer or a cheerleader or a gymnast who had messages from coaches that you know you're really really good and you're an okay person when you're this body size. And so here you are, you don't know who you are anymore, kids have left. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on, and then it's trying to redefine, like, okay, if I can control my numbers and the number of steps and the calories I count and I lose weight, then I'll know who I am. And so, again, that's so individualized. I could I could tell you a different story for every single person that I talk to, and, and I think that's really where... As you mentioned, Bridget, in my article, I talk a lot and encourage clinicians to be very compassionate and supportive and hold that that part of where someone's really concerned about their body weight. And so I'm not going to say you can't lose weight or you shouldn't lose weight, but just really holding that space of, wow, that's so important to you and what makes it hard to just focus on health. And that can be a really long conversation. So in some ways, I kind of am on a little bit of a gray area in terms of being a nutrition therapist, but in some, in many cases, I will pass the baton or recommend that person see a therapist Mm -hmm. if it's really kind of becoming too much and it's not just a nutrition slash body image identity thing, it's bigger and more, it's never been resolved. That's when I start to partner with other clinicians too. A woman over 45
1: who is perimenopausal or 50 and has gone through the change, her estrogen levels are now decreasing. And you speak about the fact that the estrogen, as it decreases, you can actually increase your appetite. I believe, what was it called? Aphasia or something that? yeah It's a really funky technical term. <laughs> Where you actually, because some of are like, I don't understand why I'm hungrier. Like, why am I desiring to eat more? But that's actually can, not a hundred percent, but there is a factor of your estrogen is dropping and is causing you to be hungrier. Can you talk a little bit about that? and yeah.
2: Yeah. And in perimenopause, that can even be even probably more complicated than I'm even stating, right? Because it's not just estrogen, but it could even be the fluctuations of the hormones. So if you look at like scientists, um, when they study individual women, the hormones aren't just declining like this. It's this rapid up and down kind of thing, right? So this is, it's declining overall, but it is a dynamic fluctuation. And part of that is progesterone too. And so progesterone Testosterone is a hormone, if you think about it, for a normal reproductive woman who's not on birth control or oral contraceptives. It, after ovulation is when progesterone is. that's the time when progesterone increases, and sometimes women will even say, "Oh my gosh, I'm, I have lots of cravings and I'm really hungry during that time." And I always think of pregnant, progesterone as the pregnancy hormone, and so it makes sense because your body is potentially preparing for a pregnancy. So when we're going through these fluctuations, and progesterone might be spiking, but estrogen's not counteracting it, or estrogen spiking progesterone. I mean, so there's all these other factors that come into play. As a result, it kind of wreaks havoc in terms of turning on or off those body functions in the brain as we're thinking about appetite. So I know that kind of gets kind of technical, but what you can do about it then is just to slow down and pay attention to that. So if you skip breakfast, skimp on lunch, and are having tons of cravings in the afternoon and evening, well, is that because of hormones? Or is it because your body's really hungry? Mm-hmm. But it might magnify or intensify that. So you might you have been able to get by with that eating pattern in the past, But now your body just really needs to have more of a regular, consistent intake to help manage that a little bit more.
1: And what about the food that we are eating as we go, as we age, it's not necessarily just perimenopause and menopause, but as we age, our body changes, our metabolism changes. What food should we be putting in our body to help maintain the strength and the bone density and just overall health?
2: Yeah, that's exactly where I try to help people. When I meet with somebody, that's one of my first things that I do is I do a complete nutrition assessment. And I first kind of put a magnifying glass to what someone tells me they're already eating so that I can use that to help people see, like, let's focus on, like, say, for the individual who's not having breakfast let's try to have something simple at breakfast and let's say it's someone who likes yogurt and can tolerate you know dairy products and so that's a super easy breakfast right so you can have yogurt and we're getting a lot of bang for our buck so we're getting some good protein it has calcium some other important nutrients you could have some really good berries with that and again you're getting those good fiber nutrient rich foods and probably even like some walnuts so you're gonna get some omega-3 that. So, I like to help people understand what those nutrients are or those body systems that we want to take care of. So bone health, calcium and vitamin D, and some other minor nutrients become important. So like vitamin D, often we can do like a blood test to find out where your vitamin D is at. And in some cases, supplement if someone doesn't isn't outside very often. Calcium, there's a lot of really good calcium rich foods and dairy products, but there's also good calcium sources in in plant foods and non-dairy foods like oranges and almonds and some are sesame seeds so there's kind of all these um, collard greens I live here in Georgia and I, was, I love collard greens but they're like a really rich excellent source of calcium so helping people identify what are those foods you already like and then what are some of the nutrients that we might be deficient in? And then let's plug those in. So that's that's kind of the big thing for bone health. But also gut health becomes a real another another big concern for perimenopausal and menopausal women. So as we have some of those hormones shifting and potentially related to some other things, people will say that they have a lot more constipation and bloating and diarrhea or back and forth or one or the other. And so the Type of foods that we eat, fiber-rich type foods, which mostly are plant foods, can help create a healthy gut microbiome, which might help with some of those problems. Others are, you know, your cardiovascular health concerns. Um, so in that area, we focus on omega-3 fatty acids, which are found in fish oil or fatty fish like salmon, tuna, or plant sources like walnuts and ground fox seed and chia seed and some th- some other things like. that. And you talked a little bit in your article, and I was trying to find where it was, just it was talking
0: about like, are there any uh, foods that can really help the hormones, any foods that you eat that will help your hormones?
2: And I was, could you talk a little bit about what your findings were with that? So one of the things, so that comes up in the area of supplements, where how can we have like a non-pharmacological way Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. help women? Mm -hmm. And so phytoestrogens are chemicals. Are components that are found in plants. And they're widely available in one is like red clover. We don't really eat red clover, so that gets packaged up in a little pill. And then the other is soy foods. Mm-hmm. And what those two have in common is they have a component, of phytoestrogen. they're called isoflavones. Mm-hmm. And isoflavones are just these little chemicals that when you eat soy foods, for example, they get into the gut, into your um, GI tract, and you need a certain type of intestinal bacteria that will potentially convert those isoflavones into what might be an active form of an estrogenic property in the body. So the thing is, is that when you look at studies, a lot of studies will show that it doesn't seem to make a difference, whereas other women seem to have a benefit. And so what they've concluded is that there's probably about a third of North American women that may have this type of intestinal bacteria that can help with that conversion. So theoretically, if you could eat soy foods, have that transition or that conversion happen, then it might turn on or turn off certain body functions so that we're not having hot flashes and we're not struggling with so many night sweats. And so Mm -hmm. it can have a potential benefit. But again, they're rigorously looking at this research and there's good studies that say, yeah, we can't mm-hmm. really count on that but we do know that soy foods are a really good mm-hmm. antioxidant anti-inflammatory food it's a high quality soy protein there was some my master's research was in soy so I followed soy mm-hmm. <laughs> for mm-hmm. a really long time which that poor food has just been through the ringer mm-hmm. in terms of yeah. press but the reality is that it's one of those that had one bad research article come out which has actually been retracted and then the the idea that this is something that increases or promotes breast cancer, does all these horrible things to the body, is kind of persisted. And so it's still kind of a, a debatable topic. Now, what's your opinion? Teresa asked, What's your opinion on probiotics? Oh, you want to know my opinion? I thought. Yes. Um, now, Teresa wants to know your opinion on probiotics. I was like, <laughs> that's, a, that's another great question. It depends. So, what I usually want to know is what are we trying to have happen as a result of the probiotic intervention? So, is someone struggling with constipation or is it diarrhea? Do we know if it's from IBS or from another particular like history of antibiotics? So, we have to be careful with probiotics. We have to make sure that what we're prescribing actually targets what that particular outcome is that we want to resolve or the problem because just not any old and you can get these probiotics that have like billions of species and people think that well that will cover it and not always Um, they still need a specific strain and type of bacteria to really target at least that's what the research would say we also need to have some caution around probiotics though because in some cases they might not be helpful and could actually contribute to more problems for some people. So it's, it's really an individual basis, but certainly I, I help people and guide people to what they might try and and see if that helps. And if it doesn't, then we, we move on. Can you ask a doctor or even a pharmacist in saying, I have diarrhea, or I have constipation,
1: or I have bloating, which one do you, would you recommend for that particular issue?
2: Well, my hope is that you could. For many individuals, clinicians, it depends on their scope of practice. Right. So are they paying attention to the literature about probiotics, for example? At the North American Menopause Society annual conference, which was in Chicago last fall, uh, they had a couple really notable presenters that talked about probiotics for gut health and probiotics for vaginal health. And very, very leading scholars in terms of the work that they do. And, you know, this is a room of 700 uh, gynecologists and clinicians. And one of the questions that someone from the audience asked the presenters is, um, do either of you use probiotics? And both of them said no. Mm. So that was pretty okay. telling. Wow. Um, and the individual who focuses on the gut health part of it his recommendation as we all kind of know is that there's so much we still don't understand about probiotics but what we do know is a plant-based diet that is high in fruits and vegetables and whole grains and those kinds of foods actually populate healthy gut bacteria for people mm-hmm. for normal you know there's certain things that will interrupt that and that's that's where we kind of have to look at it differently but for most people having a healthy, well-balanced diet is probably more beneficial. Okay. now we have another question.
0: Do you um, want to ask Kim's question? Sure. Kim asks: Are there certain foods that lead to a thicker middle or gain in that area, i.e., carbs?
2: So, <laughs> yeah. Pesky carbohydrates. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it could, they could just as any overeating any food could. Mm -hmm. So when you think about it from the standpoint that potentially the gain in the middle is related to overeating in general and that might be you know well for every individual that might be a little bit different you know how do we determine what overeating is because I have a lot of women who come to me and they're like I'm eating 1200 calories a day I exercise all the time and I still have five pounds in this middle so that's a tricky question but carbohydrates are very typically highly palatable foods that are often really efficient fuel sources for the body so crackers breads some of those kinds of foods if they're potentially overconsumed they could have an effect for some people that that might be something that's contributing to that that middle but i know plenty of people that eat a good amount of carbohydrates that don't have Weight gain, either. So it's kind of the whole thing. Most of us, probably anyone who's around our age who's watching, we started in this whole diet culture with fat, was the evil enemy, mm-hmm. right? So if we just didn't eat fat, we would lose weight, and many of us did that <laughs> very well. Mm-hmm. All of us perfectionists got it down. And then, of course, we come back with fat's okay, and we know that fat eating fat doesn't make you fat. And and so I always I always caution people to blame a particular macronutrient, but no matter what the macronutrient—protein, fat, or carbohydrates—really focus on um, those nutrient sources. Sometimes when people have a rule or forbidden food, or even set up this idea that this is bad for me, I shouldn't eat these carbohydrates. And then you add that to, and I'm craving chocolate, or I'm craving a particular snack or carbohydrate-containing food, it can kind of backfire mm-hmm. from that point. But also to legitimize that cravings are really normal. It's okay that we have a craving. It's great that we crave food. If we didn't crave food or desire food, we would perish as a human Mm -hmm. race, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the reward centers in our brain are set up in a way that we do have a desire to go get food. The reality is we live in a culture where we have a lot of highly palatable food around us quite frequently Mm -hmm. and efficient fuel sources that by that I mean higher sugar, more processed foods actually even get our brain even more excited. And so it's just having an awareness of that and trying to balance that. And so if you are let's say having a craving for one of those really delicious carb-laden goodies, mm-hmm. um, I usually recommend that people practice mindful eating. So then there's a whole concept around mindfulness and mindful eating where you can just remove distractions when you're eating approach the food without judgment eat really slowly and mindfully savoring and allowing yourself to taste the food so often that will be something I will do in session with individuals is say why don't you go get that food that you think you shouldn't have and let's just have it together and let's mm-hmm. see what if you even like it sometimes people will say I Like I said, you know, about the veggie straws. Mm -hmm. My daughter got started on those. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. um, they're just crunchy, and they have, like, this really great texture. So they they definitely solve a need for when I want to crunch on something. And Mm -hmm. if you can have some awareness of that, knowing that it's not really going to ever probably completely satisfy maybe what you need if you're frustrated or eating for some type of a emotional reason, then you can have a better intervention. Cool. Before I freeze again, i going to get a question out. Uh-huh.
1: You know, we talked before off air about intermittent fasting and it's a very popular thing to do right now, but it, uh-huh. you had mentioned it can also be a very dangerous thing to do. It's not the best idea. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. So intermittent fasting, as well as any other diet is in and of itself diet mentality is problematic because it already increases stress and anxiety that you have to follow these set of rules it can be kind there can be some benefits of it having some comfort of if we use intermittent fasting as an example okay hey, well if i just don't eat during these hours of the day i'll be okay and there's so many different intermittent fasting protocols out there, though, too. So even when we're addressing intermittent fasting, I always have to kind of look at what, which one are we talking about, because there's like 5-2, you know, where you, you don't eat every other day, and alternate day fasting. Um, when you look at the science and the literature, it's, it's actually really interesting, and so they'll refer to it as time-restricted feeding. And so when we look at time-restricted feeding and the effect metabolically on the body, there actually can be some benefits, but a lot of those are still an eight to 10 hour window of eating, which is pretty normal. So if you eat three meals about every three hours, and they are three square meals that have some protein, carbohydrates, variety of fruits and vegetables, healthy fats, then that can fit into I guess that paradigm if someone's wanting some guidance around that. But intermittent fasting in and of itself is, you know, becomes a diet rule, becomes something that a lot of times people don't stick to and then we're back to the conversation we had before of where okay, that helped you lost 10 or 20, 30, 40, 50 pounds and now what are you going to do for the and that was my problem with alternate day fasting is I just can't even see how that's applicable for someone in midlife when on certain days, you're only supposed to eat so many calories, which means it's harder to exercise. Mm -hmm. And then my question was, well, my daughter's getting married. So what if my alternate day that I'm not supposed to eat is the day that she's getting married? Like, do I not have cake? Like, What do I do in that scenario? And what we know from an eating disorder standpoint is when people fall off the wagon, they fall big. And so when you don't maintain your rules, it kind of all falls apart. And so I just really want people to think about when they're thinking about a diet or evaluating that, one, is it something you can stick with for the rest of your life? And two, will it potentially cause micronutrient or malnutrition? So are we taking out food groups? One of the problems with intermittent fasting is... If you're not eating at certain times of the day, you might get lightheaded, you might be dizzy, it might impact your activity if you are an avid exerciser or workout. And so it can affect energy. We know energy deficits are problems for midlife and menopausal women. So that that's kind of, again, I try to help people do a little bit of a pros and cons analysis and is it really worth it in the long run? One of the things we
1: also hear a lot from our listeners is exercise.
2: They'll often say, you know, I'm
1: doing the same thing I was doing before, but it's no longer working. Mm -hmm. I know that as we get a little bit older, our, you know, our muscle mass is just as important because as our hormones go down, osteoporosis becomes an issue. But what
2: can you say to them when they say to you, I'm doing what I was doing before, but it's just not working anymore. You need to do something different. (laughs) (laughs) So, so there's two answers to that though. But from the standpoint of weight management, Um, For pretty much anybody, though, that would be true, but if you've kind of been running the three miles or your one hour of activity every single day, forever and ever and ever, probably need to mix it up, Um, but if that's what you enjoy and love doing, then it has all kinds of cardiometabolic benefits. So, if trying to go do something that you don't enjoy means you're probably going to stop exercising, that's not a good idea. Mm-hmm. More often, what I see with individuals is we have this like loss of lean tissue that's happening, and a lot of women are doing moderate-intensity cardiovascular-type activities that they enjoy and are fun, whether that's walking or cycling or some of those kinds of things, and they're not bringing in more of the weight-bearing resistance exercise. And, and it's really crucial. Um, and so that's more than just lifting soup cans. But that's an opportunity to... Find a group of women and get together and hire a personal trainer or get some guidance around, um, you know, get some resistance bands or do some of those types of exercises. Not only are they beneficial in terms of maintaining that lean tissue, which is really important, but also for bone health. So, So that's one of the most important parts of that. And then the other thing is making sure that you do something that you enjoy. And so if you play tennis and you love to play tennis, well, absolutely. Absolutely, keep playing tennis, mm-hmm. and your, your body's just adapted to that. Like, mm-hmm. to your body. It's really not, you're not going to see definite gains um, once you do the same activity over and over and over again.
1: If you had a a woman who walked in your office and she was really frustrated because she felt like she was just gaining weight, everything she's done hasn't worked, that worked before, what's the first thing you could recommend her? Is it getting rid of something in her diet? Is it sitting down and, and writing what you eat? Like A small, simple step for women who are just so frustrated with weight in midlife that they can take to kind of make them feel like they're getting a little control or doing something different?
2: Uh, That is such a great question. That would be my million dollar question. (laughs) Right. And
1: that is our million dollar question.
2: (laughs) I will say that my first thing that comes to mind is to really just honor and acknowledge how frustrated the woman is. That she feels heard first and foremost. Because... There's often that idea that I have this magic food or this silver bullet kind of thing that we can do that's going to stop this out of control feeling. So that would be one of the first things. It's just that people feel validated and heard that this is really a struggle. And then together, taking a look at all of the different lifestyle pieces. So like I have this worksheet that I've put together, which is called a healthy habits worksheet. And we look at all of these different parts of let's look at this together. So maybe someone is going to their doctor regularly. They're having their mammograms. They're having their regular colonoscopy. They're doing all those things. It's like, well, let's, let's make sure and check that off. Like, yay, you're doing that. And then maybe they're working out all the time and they are doing really good cardiovascular flexibility and strength work. Yay, that's great. You're happy with that. But maybe their problem is that they are really, really hungry in the middle of the day and they're trying to eat healthier, but they don't recognize that they're usually under-eating in the morning. And so that might be journaling. That might be the first you know, kind of detective work that I have that person do is, let we have to figure out what is causing the weight gain. So all of those different things in the perfect storm, really looking at that, doing an assessment, and then going at what, what we actually can control. So really helping women figure out what you can control at a time when everything feels out of control is sugar really an enemy as we get older i mean i know it's not the best thing it's not my enemy Mm -hmm. okay i think that uh you know every individual will probably give you a different opinion or thought um i probably be because i do come at my work from an eating disorder perspective and my own personal relationship food with food is very intuitive eating based. And, um, I trust food. I don't worry about foods that I eat. And so then it keeps its proper place. So I enjoy sugar-containing foods. If I'm going to have ice cream, it is going to be Haagen-Dazs. It is not going to be one of those enlightened whatever things. I just don't even understand. And, And at the same time, the amount I have might be different than actually what I would have had 10 or 20 years ago. But that's actually listening to... know, that I can have it and that I'm not deprived. And so that's just a whole different mental perspective. When you give yourself permission to have some of these foods and then work on the, what is a reasonable amount of sugar for you. And with all that said, though, I see it in my own household too, but some people really, really struggle with what feels like an addictive property. We, we kind of have debunked the idea that sugar or food is addictive, but there's something for some people that it really feels powerful. Like that sugar, just you can't have it out on the counter. And so I happen to be someone who, for whatever reason, I can have a bowl of M&Ms on the counter and I might walk by them a few times and never really dig in. But for other people, that could never happen. And so I'm pretty respectful of understanding that individual's relationship with food and really helping them navigate. So you can have permission to have maybe the sugar-containing foods, but what does that really look like in your lifestyle and in your eating pattern so that it can stay in its proper place. How can people get in touch with you, Val? That's great. Um, Well, you can go to my website, which is Enlighten You Nutrition, or www.enlighten, the word enlighten, E-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N, the letter U, the word nutrition.com. And all of my contact information is on my website. Um, I have information about a nutrition group, that I've offered in person. I've done virtual before. I'm going to start a new virtual group again in September. And so if anyone wants to have more conversation and and you know get in touch, that's a good way to do that too. My there's a contact form on my website, so that's probably the best. I could my email is valid enlightenunutrition.com, so you can certainly email me. But I welcome email requests, and I can point you in in different directions or help you myself. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on today
1: thank you so much Val for all that information and remember you can always check out some more information on our newsletter but we just love when there's Questions that we get from our listeners and we have someone who answers them and answers them so completely like Val did. So thank you. Also, we want to let you guys know that if you happen to be in the California area, specifically Los Angeles, Bridget and I will be in person at the Wise Cause event on September 10th. It's at the Skirball Cultural Center. I hope I said that right. On Saturday, September 10th, and you can check out all the information on Wise Pause.com, That's wisepause.com. And we hope to see you there. Let us know it. Email us at howflashescooltopics at gmail.com if you're coming, because we'd love to stop by and say hello to you. We will be interviewing some of the experts that will be there. So we are excited
0: for it. It's just nice to get in person again. It is. Oh, I'm so, yeah, it'll be great. It'll be great to see all these experts and see all these people that we've talked to and met right. over Zoom, but have not met in person. So it'll be very exciting.
1: And we also have some exciting news coming up in October. We can't share it yet, but you guys are going to be excited because we're just jumping up and down in our seats. We can't wait. So with that, have a great week, guys. Make sure you are subscribing to the podcast, that little red button, and you're following us on all forms of social media. Look for us and you will find us there. Have a great week and we'll talk to you next time.
0: Bye.